one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 275, The Time of Trial. Let me briefly remind you to come and chat on FlickChat, by the way, there's a link and instructions on thehistoryofengland.co.uk. We could talk about today's episode, which is a slightly bloodthirsty one, I have to tell you. Let us start with a picture of Smithfield in London, on the 4th of February 1555. Smithfield was rammed with people, and we might imagine a febrile atmosphere of both apprehension and excitement, a right old mix of rowdiness and piety, contempt and concern. There was a right old mix of people, from the great and the good, to the more than a little rough around the edges. Alongside traders and clerics, Protestants and Catholics, there were anxious eyes, watchers, waiting to see what would happen next, how the event that had drawn people there would unfold and how they would react to it. Eyes on behalf of Reginald Poole and the Queen were there. The Lord Chancellor, Stephen Gardiner, was probably there in person. The Imperial Ambassador, Renard, was there, hopeful and fearful. And the opposition too, Antoine de Noailles, the Ambassador of France. In the square was a stake and a raised platform was around the stake, and then faggots of wood were close by, all ready for the event to follow. Near to the stake were the two adjudicating magistrates, carefully chosen, trusted by the Queen. Robert Rochester was the controller of the Queen's household, part of the Queen's inner circle at Kenning Hall during her coup. The other was Richard Southwell. Richard Southwell was a member of the Royal Council, and Richard Southwell was a cynical man. Here is one kind of person produced by the vicious nature of Tudor court politics. A reasonably able administrator, but nothing more than that, who'd managed to keep his place through the reigns of Henry and Edward and now Mary. He kept his place, largely through his abilities with that most noble component of the sailing dinghy, the jib. At the slightest sign of a political or religious luff, Richard Southwell's hand was there to tighten the sheet and adjust the tiller. Richard Southwell knew how to trim his jib, and he knew how to trim his religious and political opinions to suit the times. Here was the man who had given credence to Richard Rich's testimony against Thomas More, who had switched allegiances to desert Jane Grey's side when the tide looks as though it might be turning. Southwell's task this February day was to manage the execution of one John Rogers, a man that Southwell, in his cynicism, had never expected to come to the stake. Not that it was anything other than clear that Rogers was a thoroughgoing heretic. He had been an editor of the English Bible, for one. He translated four of the Lutheran Philip Melanchthon's work. He knew Melanchthon personally, since Rogers had worked, lived and married in Germany. Melanchthon had a very high opinion of John Rogers, 
describing him as a learned man, gifted with great ability, which he sets off with a noble character. He will be careful to live in concord with his colleagues. His integrity, trustworthiness and constancy in every duty make him worthy of the love and support of all good men. Well, that's nice. Rogers had married Adriana de Wyden, a woman also of great gifts, according to John Fox, who described her as more richly endowed with virtue and soberness of life than with worldly treasures, and the two of them had set about producing little Rogers with some enthusiasm, or at least efficiency, and quite possibly enthusiasm. And in Edward's reign, he'd been appointed vicar of one of the London's leading churches. He was a man of strong opinions with our Rogers during Edward's reign, John Fox had gone to him to ask him to intercede with Cranmer to stop the burning of Joan Boucher, the Anabaptist. Rogers had refused, saying that it seemed like a mild punishment for an Anabaptist like Joan, which earned him an angry outburst from Fox. So just to leaven the story that follows, the point I'm making is that Rogers himself had approved the burning of heretics. On the more positive side, he had courageously and angrily preached about what he saw as the misuse of Abbey lands during Edward's reign. Now, as soon as Mary had gained the throne, he'd been a marked man. And in this, he had not helped himself, it must be said. He had made no attempt whatsoever to duck, or indeed even to weave, preaching loudly at St Paul's Cross to tell everyone to adhere to the true religion, as defined by Edward. On the 16th of August, 1553, he had been told to keep to his house. In response, Rogers did that footballer's thing. You might imagine Norman bites your legs hunter, cynically hacking down some striker, showing irritating signs of getting too big for his boots, and then turning to the ref to protest his innocence. What, me? Come on, ref. I'm just preaching the state religion, said Rogers. Actually, unlike Norman Hunter, Rogers was right. But as with most persecutions, the rule of law is the first thing to go. Rogers was confined to house arrest and deprived of his living without being charged or convicted of any offence, since he was not guilty of any offence at the time, since the laws had not yet been changed by Mary in 1553. This was a problem. Referring back to that procreative efficiency, by the time February 1555 had come about, there were 11 little Rogers, which is a lot of mouth to feed, and much hardship had been the result. By January 1554, Rogers had been formally incarcerated in Newgate Prison in London and was being thoroughly and lengthily interrogated. At which point I can return to Richard Southwell, sitting there in Smithfield Square, waiting for the object of all this fuss to arrive. At one stage, Southwell himself had been part of the team of men interrogating Rogers to both establish the extent of his heresy and to try to get him to recant and save his life. But Rogers would not change his views, though in 1554, Southwell had not been that worried about that. Rogers had written in his diary this exchange at the end of an interrogation. The Lord Chancellor bade to prison with me again, and away, away, said he. We have no more to talk with all if I would not be reformed. So he termed it. Away, away. Up I stood, for I had kneeled all the while. Then Sir Richard Southwell, who stood in a window by, said to me, Thou wilt not burn in this gear when it cometh to the purpose. I know well that. Southwell's sneer was that Rogers would suddenly discover a fresh set of beliefs when confronted with the fire. 
or that Rogers would reply to that, but a cynicism was, Sir, I cannot tell, but I trust to my Lord God, yes, lifting up mine eyes unto heaven. Back to the 4th of February, 1555 then, and the rowdy Smithfield Square in London. At this point, Southwell might have heard further tumult in the distance because the sheriffs were bringing Rogers from Newgate Prison to face the music. Not that Rogers had had much time to prepare. He'd gone to sleep the previous night, expecting the following day to be much like the last, i.e. cold, miserable and hungry. But he had been woken that morning by the insistent shakings of the jailer's wife, since she'd found it almost impossible to wake him up. And she'd given him the disappointing news that this would be a busy day in the diary. Get up, have a spot of food, go and see Bishop Bonner and have the clerical robes ripped off me and be downgraded to a mere civilian, go and get burned. Then, no more social engagements. During stage two, Rogers had made one request of Bonner to have a chance to see and speak to his wife before the burning, which seems no more than reasonable. But for Bonner, Rogers was now something less than human, just a recalcitrant heretic to be processed as a warning to the world, and so he was brusquely refused even that. So, looking at my interactive Argus map of London through the intertubes, I might guess that when it came for time for Rogers to be so processed, he would have come from Newgate Prison and passed through the city walls of London onto what I thought would have been Giltspur Street, formerly known as Knight Rider Street, because of the jousts that used to go on in happier days at Smithfield. On the Argus map, actually, it looks like Gifford Street, but ho-hum. Up past Cock Lane, which you might think should be named for the sellers of chicken, given London's proud trading history, but if you do think that, then you need to think again of a different type of trade, which was legalised there in the lane in the medieval period. Just before coming into Smithfield, they would have reached Pie Corner, which in just over a hundred years' time would become famous not for its pies, but for being the furthest extent reached by the Great Fire of London, 1666. Past Hosier's Lane and onto the open space and the roar of Smithfield and the noise of the crowd, with the bulk of the church of St Bartholomew the Great away to the right. And there he would have seen amongst the crowd his wife and eleven children, the youngest of whom was just a baby who he would have seen now for the very first time. I cannot imagine what that was like for any of them. But both Adriana Rogers and all her children were there to encourage their husband and father and help him onto the life eternal with courage. And so they smiled and they waved in such a way that made the French ambassador Noailles marvel that even his children assisted at it, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if he had been led to a wedding. There was no time allowed for any last tender words, Rogers was taken to the stake and tied to it. We've been through the process of these executions with Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley, so let's not overdo it, but suffice to say that as normal, Rogers was exhorted by the sheriffs to take this last opportunity to save himself and recant. To their horror, but surely not surprised by this stage, Rogers would not hear of it. Ordinarily, the condemned was allowed to speak at this point, but not Rogers. No one in authority wanted to allow Rogers any more opportunities to pull any more souls to damnation. And then, let us turn to John Fox to do the honours. Just so that you know, I am now about to read from John Fox about John Rogers burning. So, if you don't like the thought of that, turn away now for a few moments. Okay? Here we go then. John Fox. After these few words, 
the fire was put unto him, and when it had taken hold both upon his legs and shoulders, he, as one feeling no smart, washed his hands in the flame as though it had been in cold water. And after lifting up his hands unto heaven, not removing the same, until such time as the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly father. History does not record what happened to Adriana Rogers, though the lives of her children are well enough catalogued, with a couple of them at least going on to literary and diplomatic careers. Nor does it record the Cutter Southwell's jib as the people left Smithfield, but it does record the worried reports of the ambassadors. Renard thought the whole thing was a really, really bad idea. He told Philip about the people in the crowd who rushed up to the fire and gathered the ashes and bones, wrapped them up in paper to preserve them. I'm assuming this is some time later, otherwise there'd been rather more medical problems going on, but it's interesting that that instinct for relics died hard, even amongst the Protestants of the time. I do not think it well that your majesty should allow further executions to take place unless the reasons are overwhelmingly strong and the offences committed have been so scandalous as to render the course justifiable in the eyes of the people. So Renard urged, and as far as he was concerned, Philip must make Mary go much more carefully, much more slowly. Why be so public, he argued. If punishment was really needed, let's go for secret executions, banishment and imprisonment. Renard was worried that not only would these executions produce resistance to Mary from the people, but that the traditional reluctance to blame the monarch would make the English turn to blame the Spanish. Ambassador Nouai, meanwhile, gloomily wrote home to say that Roger's death confirmed the alliance between Pope and England and he wrote of the support given to Rogers by the greater part of the people in the crowd, not only by his family. I suspect Richard Southwell would have been much more cynical, of course, and therefore more hopeful, that with this and a few more burnings maybe, the fires would soon fizzle out, literally, as the Protestants of England took a look at the flames and decided Catholicism suddenly looked like a much more attractive option than they'd previously thought. In this, to be fair, Southwell was not alone. Gardiner, Poole, Mary, all the main architects of the programme were confident that a few show trials were all that would be needed. It should also be said that the vast majority involved fervently hoped that this would be so. In establishing the programme, Mary herself had given instructions that the heretics should be reconciled, if at all possible, rather than be killed. That I believe it would be well to inflict punishment at this beginning without much cruelty and passion, but without, however, omitting to do such justice on those who will choose by their false doctrines to deceive simple persons, that the people may clearly comprehend they have not been condemned without just cause, whereby others will be brought to know the truth and will beware of letting themselves be induced to relapse into such new and false opinions. So yes, there is punishment there for the great damage done to the souls of others by leading them into error, but there is education too, and of course, a consciousness of how serious an act this is. This is not a pogrom of mindless hate, however deeply Mary detested heresy and heretics, and she did so detest them. But this was to be a solemn, serious, weighty matter. The people attending would hear good sermons, so that they would understand why this was being done and have errors corrected. 
each event would be taken seriously. I would wish none to be burned without some of the council's presence, she instructed. And in this she very much followed the instructions of Cardinal Poole, for whom heretics were the very breath of hell. There is no kind of man so pernicious to the Commonwealth as they be, he wrote. But he was determined that as far as possible the accused should be talked round. There is no sign here of people being hauled off willy-nilly and thrown onto the fire without care. Each one was the subject of deep interrogation and an attempt to persuade. And by interrogation, I mean a two-way conversation. I do not mean it as a euphemism for physical torture. For Paul, the cost was particularly high if a heretic was burned, for he believed that any who died unrepentant went not to purgatory, but straight to eternal damnation. The most zealous of the bishops prosecuting the evangelists was Bishop Bonner in London, and of all the leaders of the persecution, he is most open to the possible charge of a personal animus in the burnings. But even he was prepared to go to great lengths to persuade. He even offered to set one heretic up in a shop, an apprentice called William Hunter, and said to him, I think thou art ashamed to bear a faggot and recant openly, but if thou wilt recant by thy saying... I will promise thee, thou shalt not be put to open shame. But speak the word here now between me and thee, and I will promise thee it shall go no further, and thou shalt go home again without any hurt. All hoped, therefore, that a short, sharp shock, accompanied by a positive promotion of re-education in the true faith, would get things sorted out quickly and without too much death. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. All of this is not to suggest that there was no element of vengeance here. Punishment and fury there is in abundance, and everything was to be done to make sure that the fear and terror were made clear to all and sundry, in the hope that the leadership of local Protestant conventicles would lose their nerve and the conventicle would collapse. So, one of the next to die was Bishop Hooper, a very outspoken evangelical, of course. Mary instructed that Hooper should be burned in Gloucester, for the example and terror of such as he hath there seduced and mistaught, and because he hath done most harm there. The instructions drip with Mary's contempt for Hooper and for others such as him. For Mary, Hooper must die because, as heretics be a vain glorious person, and delighteth in his tongue, and having liberty may use his said tongue to persuade such as he hath seduced, to persist in the miserable opinion that he had sown among them. Hooper was also not allowed to speak at his execution and was taken hooded so as not to excite sympathy or have the opportunity to give or receive encouragement. Hooper himself was very well aware of what was to come and well aware of the challenge that all in his place would need to think about, whether to submit or to die. From jail, he wrote, Now is the time of trial to see whether we fear more God or man. 
Bishop Hooper, of course, did not shrink from the challenge, and his courage is even more extraordinary when you consider the manner of his death. It took 45 minutes of screaming agony for him to go, since the wood was green and slow to burn. A bystander wrote a rather horrific description, so horrific that I decided not to read it out, but it's all there in Fox's book. From February to April 1555 then, in the first flush of the persecution, 16 died. As you might expect, many of them were clergymen, seven of the first 16, and a couple were those considered local leaders described as gentlemen. But one of the striking features about those that died under Mary's reign of terror was that in the main, it was ordinary men and women that died. Even in this first tranche, we have a fisherman in Cardiff, a weaver of Shoreditch, a butcher from Braintree. Among them all was our William Hunter, who sadly was not simply ashamed, but genuinely believed that he had no option but to die or suffer eternal torment. And to set against Bonner's apparent humanity, we have the example of Thomas Tomkins, the first of those lay victims. During the interrogation, Bonner held his hand to a candle flame and had his beard shorn. Catholics were clean-shaven, so Bonner sent Tomkins to the barber so he would look like a Catholic. The reactions of the crowds were many and varied. At Roger's execution, the crowd was for the most part willing Roger's on, rooting for him. At Hooper's execution, the place was packed out again, but part of the reason for that was that it was market day. Even Fox conceded that as well as Hooper's supporters, many also came to see his behaviour towards death. At Rawlins White's death in Cardiff, the conflict was not just within the crowd, but between Rawlins himself and the priest conducting the mass. I bow not before that idol, roared Rawlins, while his friends held fast to his hands until the fire at last drove them apart. Mary's royal council established a process of persecution and correction defined in March 1555. Each county was divided up into eight or twelve smaller units allocated between the justices of the peace as appropriate. The JPs helped preachers who were sent down to preach Catholic doctrine to the people. They were to search out absentees from church to seek for religious dissidents, paying special attention to preachers and teachers of heresy and procurers of secret meetings for that purpose. They were to recruit in every parish some one or more honest men secretly instructed to act as informers, and they were to charge constables of the most honest and Catholic of every parish to vigilance against vagabonds, wanderers, and such as may be probably suspected. I guess it's inevitable that we tend to see the persecuted as passive in this, that this was something done to them, in which they had no role but personal resistance. In fact, this was far from the case. The Royal Council searched also for conventicles, meeting secretly to both practice their religion, but also plan and organise a response to persecution, with very much the same motivation and need for secrecy as would Catholics under Elizabeth. In Ipswich, the strength of local feeling was so strong that there was a stream of pleadings from beleaguered Catholics describing how some Protestants had fled, others openly defied the authorities and yet more appeared to observe Catholic practice, but in fact refused to look at the packs in church or carried out other smaller acts of rebellion, or worse, exercised social pressure. As one letter recorded, the ministers of the church are hemmed in at the open streets and called knaves. From the start, the resistance began to develop strategies, 
and one of those strategies was to harness anti-Spanish feeling. This had two advantages. Firstly, as we have seen, the Spanish were unpopular because of worries about trade, war and the role of a foreign king. And so, linking fear of Spanish tyranny and Catholicism was a clever and effective approach to garner popular support. But also, having a hack at Philip and the Spaniards meant he did not have to attack the anointed monarch. So, for example, James Tooley's execution for the perfectly secular crime of murder of a Spaniard was dressed up to look like religious resistance. From the tyranny of the Bishop of Rome and all his detestable enormities, good Lord deliverers, read Tooley from the Edwardian prayer book. In 1555, a book called A Warning for England was doing the rounds, printed in Emden in Germany but bought and circulated in England. The book bigged up the religious disturbance and Protestant suppressions in the Kingdom of Naples, pushing the red button of terror called the Spanish Inquisition, claiming that burnings were ready to begin but also stirring the much more practical fear that church lands were being seized there. In May 1555, there was a serious outbreak of violence near the court in England when a crowd of 500 armed Englishmen confronted Spaniards and five or six were killed. Then again, when Philip's Spanish-Dominican chaplain Bartolomé Carranza tried to revive the traditional Corpus Christi procession in June, a mob assembled outside the church where the Spanish, including the most noble and illustrious of the nation, were attending mass and were with only great difficulty persuaded to disperse. Very quickly then, resistance to the Spanish and support for Protestantism became linked. There was, in short, something of a bun fight, and in England there can be no fight so fierce. The experience of this first period left Stephen Gardner deeply worried and upset, and his attitude changed quickly against the policy of burning heretics, and he stopped attending the burnings in person. The evidence is that Philip also listened to his ambassador, Renard, and shared his view that this strategy was not only creating chaos, but understood that the negative impact would hurt the Spanish disproportionately. So, how to tell Mary then that he thought she was on the wrong path? Not an easy one. This was, for Mary, a matter of conscience and Philip was well aware of what that entailed. So he took the Anne Boleyn approach. Let's get my court chaplain to deliver a sermon, and then if Mary gets grumpy, I can take the Norman bite-your-legs-hunter approach and give said chaplain a severe and public dressing down. As a text, Alfonso de Castro, the chaplain referred to, took a report from Renard, which made the point that Protestants use an argument. The cruel punishments which they asserted being applied with recourse to fire rather than doctrine and good examples. Fair point, teachers don't burn us sort of thing. So, Alfonso preached a sermon attacking the burnings, repeating the desperate Protestant claims that they learned it not in scripture to burn for any conscience sake, but the contrary, they should live and be converted. It has become a relatively recent thing that Philip was far from being a religious maniac as was once part of the Protestant story about Mary's persecutions and that in fact he worked hard to stop the killings. While it's clear that Philip had little direct role in the persecution, in fact this is pretty much as far as he actively went to stop it. He had worries of his own to think about. It's true also to say even at this stage, Poole's approach was not a one-trick pony of suppression and violence. Poole was planning a church conference to gather together the talents of the church to launch a Catholic Reformation. 
But in the meantime, the new or newly converted Catholic bishops tended much more to stay within their diocese than previously and work to ensure the thorough re-establishment of Catholic practice. And in this, they were very often sympathetic to the practical problems involved. You might imagine that life for church wardens had not been easy. Take this down, put this up, take this down and, oh no, 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 you need to put that back up again. So Mary and her bishops realised that parishes often couldn't afford to replace the gorgeous rood screens torn down under Edward with work of the same quality, and they gave much latitude. Edmund Bonner completed a mammoth and comprehensive visitation of the churches in his diocese and produced a complete book and collection of homilies to be used with parishioners to instruct them properly in the faith, responding to the call of Protestants for conversion, not coercion. Essentially, beginning to understand the value of Cranmer's creation of a common liturgy. So, you know, what I'm saying is, it's not all stick and no carrot even now. But nonetheless, there is a lot of stick about. And Alfonso's intervention had absolutely no impact whatsoever. He might even, unseen by historians sadly, have put his head in his hands and muttered something about an epic fail. Because the intensity of the campaign was ratcheted up, not down, if ratcheting down is something you can do. Is it something you can do? Anyway, Giovanni Michelli, the Venetian ambassador, gloomily remarked soon after Alfonso's sermon that, two days ago, to the displeasure as usual of the population here, two Londoners were burned alive, one of them having been a public lecturer in scripture, a person 60 years of age, who was held in great esteem. In a few days, the like will be done to four or five more, and thus from time to time to many others who are imprisoned for this cause and will not recant although such severity is odious to many people. Between May 1555 and the end of September 1555, a further 53 people were burned to death for their religion. In one fell swoop then, Mary had outdone her father, executing more people for religion in five months than he had managed between the break of Rome in 1535 and the end of his reign. Now, it is ordinary people and occupations that predominate, and women are among them too. The first woman to be burned in Mary's reign is probably Marjorie Poley in July in Tunbridge, Kent. While some of the persecutions were driven by the bishops, such as Richard Thorndon, a newly converted Edwardian bishop with all the same fervour of the reformed that I have noticed in ex-smokers, but in other cases it was members of the Royal Council who were now taking the lead in pushing this forward. The words unscrupulous trimmer spring again to mind when I mention Richard Rich denouncing a draper in Billericay, Thomas Watts. And Thomas Watts did indeed burn, though I hope Rich shivered a little when Thomas cried out, Beware, beware, for you do against your conscience herein, and without you repent the Lord will revenge it. The condemned in particular were very rarely passive victims. However, while the drama of these events seems overwhelmingly the most important aspect of these years as far as most of Mary and her court were concerned, of course, they were actually not. Most minds were fixated not by Alfonso's sermon or the burnings, but by the Queen's midriff, to which we will return next week. Now, I am told that last week I did not wish you all good luck and a great week, and I am ashamed and horrified at this failure. So, to make up for it, Double best wishes this time around, and I hope your good luck this week is so amazing as to be the equivalent of a Felix Felicis potion.
Thank you also so much for your kind reviews and just generally for listening to me warble on. And I will see you all in a fortnight. <laughs>